The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Today is uh, Mother's Day, but today I'm going to be sharing a message from scripture that I hope might encourage anyone going through a trial or a time of suffering. And some of our moms might be thinking, that's me. <laughs> that's me. And turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Two. And I'll begin reading from verse 1. For the choir director, according to Jedithon, a psalm of David. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly curse. They curse. Selah. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation, my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression. And do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our mind and our hearts to this text of Scripture. And we ask, Lord, that when it's all said and done, that Christ would be exalted. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Verse 1. For the choir director, according to Jedithan, a psalm of David. And this name, Jedithan means lauder or praising. And we find in First Chronicles chapter 16 and Second Chronicles 35 and even Psalm 39 that Jedithan was one of David's chief choir directors. In Second Chronicles chapter 35, this verse 15 also calls Jedithan the king's seer, which implies that he not only led music for David, but he also prophesied God's word to him. And some say that Psalm 62 was written at a time when Saul tried to hold on to the dynasty, his dynasty, and prevent David, who was God's anointed king, from t- 
taking the throne. And others believe this psalm, and, and uh, judging from verses 3 and 4, this psalm could have also been written in light of David's experience as he dealt with his son Absalom's attempt to overthrow his father's throne. And still others think that Psalm 62 may have been David's response to the difficult years that he had while ruling in, over Judah in Hebron. That's in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. But whatever the background is, the key theme of this psalm is David's desire in the midst of his difficulties to trust in God only. J. Vernon McGee says in his commentary that this is called the only psalm. Not because there are no other psalms. There are 149 other psalms. But because the word only is significant. And notice how in Psalm 62, David's focus is fixated on God alone. Verse 1, he says, My soul waits in silence for God only. He only is my rock and my salvation. Verse 2. Verse 4 says, they only consult to cast him down, wait only upon God. He only is my rock. On God, my salvation, my glory rests, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. That's verse 7. Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God, verse 8, God is a refuge for us. And so for this message, we're going to be using 2 Samuel chapter 15 as the backdrop for, for Psalm 62. And And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we find King David leaving Jerusalem in great heartbreak as his son Absalom has successfully overthrown his father's leadership. And in 2 Samuel 15 verse 30, gives us a glimpse into David's emotional state. And I don't know if you're already there, but verse 30 says that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And then it says that all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And as he is leaving, his son Absalom is marching triumphantly into Jerusalem. And as he does, people who were once loyal to King David decide to switch sides and choose Absalom as their king. And David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, deserts him and goes over to the dark side to support Absalom. And as David leaves the city barefooted and weeping, he gets word from Ziba, Mephibosheth's, uh, that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, David's BFF, had also betrayed him. And remember who Mephibosheth was, and I can barely say his name. But he was Jonathan's crippled son who was shown mercy and allowed to eat at David's royal table and be treated as one of David's own sons. And to add insult to injury, as David was leaving the city, Shimei, a relative of Saul, came and threw rocks at him and cursed him, calling him a worthless man. We find that in 2 Samuel 16. And so David was more than likely at the center of all this difficulty as he pens Psalm 62. And in this psalm, David begins writing about waiting in silence for God. And in the New American Standard Bible, the word wait is italicized, meaning that it's not in the original Hebrew text. Literally, verse 1 begins saying, my soul, silence. My soul, silence. And the translator adds the word wait because two different Hebrew words, verse 1, 
Dumiya in verse 5, Dalmam, carry the same meaning and speak of a silent wait. And the NIV translates these Hebrew words to our English word, rest. And so both of these words used in other places of Scripture mean to be astonished to the point of being speechless, to stop, to, to cease, to hold one's peace, to, to quiet self, to be still, to wait, and to trust. These words also are opposite of how we react when a trial comes our way. We cry out, we, we lash out, we yell out, we flame out, or fizzle out. We're restless, we're unsettled, we're anxious. We, we don't wait, and we don't trust God. But in verse 1, David writes, My soul waits in silence for God only. Now, how could he say that? We find the answer in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. David, uh, uh, God only was David's rock and defense. And the word rock used in verse 2 and 7 is used actually three times in this psalm to symbolize the immutability and the impregnable strength and faithfulness and unchangeableness of Yahweh. God alone is the almighty sovereign. There is no one like him. And an amen should go there. It's okay to say amen. Number two, God only was David's salvation or his deliverance. And in 2 Samuel 15, when David was escaping from his son Absalom, he says to Zadok the priest, listen to what he says, carry the ark of God back into the city. And if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. God only was David's salvation. And then God only was David's stronghold. And the word stronghold literally refers to a structure that one can take refuge in and be safe from harm. It refers to something high like a tower, something like a fortress. God only was David's stronghold. And David was saying that he was secure in the Lord. And in Psalm 139 verse 5, he writes of God, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And at the end of verse 2, David writes, I shall not be greatly shaken. And David's response to God's <clears throat> attribute is solid. And those enemies are many. He doesn't fear. He is not moved. And so David, as you can probably already tell if you know his story, he's not writing as one who has never been there and done that. He's writing in Psalm 62 as one who has been seasoned when it comes to trials and tribulations. Look at verse 3. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? And there is some disagreement among commentators on what David's referring to in verse 3. <clears throat> the leaning wall and tottering fence refers to David's enemies compared to God, some believe, and, and his enemies are ready to fall. And others believe that the leaning wall and tottering fence refers to David himself. David's enemies' attacks have, have weakened him, and he's ready to fall. Verse 4 says, They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. 
They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. Have you ever played King of the Hill? Raise your hand. Have you ever played King of the Hill? We got, got a few of us. Well, King of the Hill is a game I played as a child where someone would be at the top of the hill and the other kids would try to like pull you down and, and, and take your place as king. David's enemies weren't playing a game. This was David's reality. After David was anointed as king of Israel, Saul guarded his own throne and more than once tried to take David's life. And when David was finally crowned king, 2 Samuel 16 tells us that his own son Absalom ran him out of the city, took over his throne, and at the advice of Ahithophel, he went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. History tells us that there were 39 kings that ruled over Israel and another 39 kings over Judah. And of the 38 kings, seven were killed by individuals who murdered that king and subsequently took his spot. You know, there was always somebody after David's position for his stuff, even to the point of threatening to murder him. They, they spoke radiant words of blessing so that he and everyone else could hear, but in the darkness of their hearts, they, they cursed him. So after contemplating the threats mentioned in verses 3 and 4, David confidently writes again in verse 5, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. And the word hope is the Hebrew word uh, tikvah, that means something yearned for and anticipated eagerly. It it also means to wait for and to, to look hopefully in a particular direction. I can imagine David was, was thinking, I only yearn for and eagerly anticipate God. I, I only wait for and look hopefully to God. When David writes, my soul, wait in silence for God only, I believe he was having a conversation with himself. Have you ever had a conversation with yourself? The medical professional tells us that talking to yourself is a sign of intelligence as long as you know <laughs> that, you're, that you're talking to yourself. The professionals also tell us that talking to yourself gives you a chance to verbally focus on your thoughts and ideas instead of having them all jumbled around in your mind. In his book, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones Jones wrote, we need to be talking to ourselves more than we are listening to ourselves. And in the Bible, we're encouraged to do the mental work required to keep our focus fixated on God and to resist the attacks of the enemy that would lead us to sin and despair. In 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, and I know you're familiar with this verse. We, we are destroying speculations. That's logismos, reasonings, philosophies. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's, that's opinions and uh, human opinions and satanic wisdom. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then in Romans chapter 6, when it comes to our sanctification or growth in Jesus Christ, Paul, he teaches in verse 5 of Romans 6 that if we are united to Jesus, 
if we are united to Jesus, we're united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And in verse 6, he, he writes this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In verse 11, Paul charges believers writing this. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 13, I don't know if you're in that chapter. I didn't ask you to turn to it, but Paul writes this. And do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. Commenting on this, John MacArthur tells us that the word present in verse 13 refers to a decision of the will. He says, before sin can have power over a believer, it must first pass through his will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul writes, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Donald Gray Barnhouse paraphrases 1 Corinthians 9, 27 to say this, I keep my body in complete subjection to my spirit. And if I don't do this, I am likely to be counted as one who did a lot of talking but finished up with the crowd far from the prize winners. What does all this have to do with Psalm 62? Back in Psalm 62, David writes in verse 5, My soul wait in silence for God only. Here, David is addressing the very center of his humanness, his soul, his innermost being. Some might say he was addressing his mind or intellect, his, his will and his feelings or his emotions. The Cambridge Bible commentary says, it is only by constant self-exhortation that the calmness of Psalm 62 verse 1 can be maintained. And so in Psalm 62, David was speaking to his soul. Spurgeon writes this, my soul I preach to you. For if you go wrong, all is not right. If you, my soul, is out of alignment, my eyes follow after vanity, my lips utter nonsense, my feet become swift to shed blood, and my hands meddle with mischief. And I can't can't count all the times, especially over the last four months, when I've had to speak to my own soul, saying, my soul... Wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. In other words, I I say to myself, mine, stop analyzing. Quit trying to figure things out. Stop replaying events as if you could have done something that would affect a different outcome. Stop asking the question, why? I say, will, stop pushing and pulling to get your own way with people or circumstances. Cease from injecting yourself into a situation in order to make it favorable to you. Stop trying to get even. Stop plotting and scheming. Emotions, calm down. Take a chill pill. Cease from fretting. It only causes more evil. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
And sometimes we need to speak to our soul and tell it to stop and wait in silence for God only. And perhaps you need to speak to yourself and say, soul, it's time to stop fretting. It's time to cease from worrying. Soul, it's time to hold your peace. It's time to be quiet, to rest, to be silent, to wait and to trust in God only. And there are the demands of marriage and family. My soul, wait in silence for God only. There are the expectations of job and employer. My soul, wait in silence for God only. And I know that you want that relationship to work out. My soul, wait in silence for God only. Soon some of you all will be sitting down for your final exam. My soul, wait in silence for God only. And I know there are times, especially in these economic times, that you run out of the money before you run out of the month. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. And in Psalm 62, David was giving himself a directive. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. Turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. There's another occasion where it appears that David had a conversation with himself. 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says in verse 1, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded south in um, Ziklag and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. And had taken captive the women and those who were, who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Verse 3, so David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Verse 6 says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So when David encouraged himself in Yahweh, his God, I believe he was speaking to his soul. He was reminding himself of the power and the providence of God. He was reminding his soul of the precious promises and provision of God. He reminded himself of his covenant relation to God. He reminded his soul of the grace, mercy, compassion, and goodness of God. And he, he reminded himself that God had delivered him from things in the past, and he will surely deliver him in the present and the future. And I believe that he may have gone all the way back to the time in his days as a young shepherd where he risked his own life to save his father's sheep. Remember that when the Philistine giant was taunting the armies of the living God, remember what David as a shepherd boy told King Saul in 1 Samuel 17? He says, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and, and killed it. Then he says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this 
uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so back in 1 Samuel 30, when the Amalekites captured his family and the families of his mighty men, the Bible says, now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And I believe that he told his soul, soul, if God delivered me from the mouth of the lion and jaw of the bear and the sword of the giant Goliath, my God will deliver us from the hand of the Amalekites. And that's exactly what happened as you read the rest of 1 Samuel 30. And it's when the trials and the difficult circumstances of life come your way, when your mind wants to think the irrational and your will tries to move you to do the immoral and your emotions drive you to do the idiotic, it's at this time that you, have, you need to have a talking to with your soul and say, my soul, wait in silence for God only for my hope is from him. So let me share with you some directives that you can give to your soul. And you see the outline there. The first one is wait in silence for God only to be your provision. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah was in a dilemma. She was barren, and as a Hebrew woman, she and others believed that God abandoned her because of sin in her life. Hannah's husband had a wife in a addition to Hannah, <laughs> and this other woman had no problem having his children. And 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6 says, Hannah was provoked severely by the other wife to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And verse 10 of the authorized version says, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And as she continued praying, remember Eli, the priest, he, he watched her and the, and the Bible comments that Hannah spoke in her heart and only her lips moved. Her voice wasn't heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. And in verse 14 Eli says to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've, neither drunk, I've, I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have what? Poured out my soul before the Lord. And the rest of the story is that how God opened her womb. He allowed her to conceive, and Hannah followed through with her vow and dedicated her baby boy Samuel to the Lord. And Samuel grew up to be a prophet and a priest who was used mightily by the Lord. God was Hannah's provision. He supplied her needs after she poured out her soul before him. Now, we find in the Bible a similar situation that happened a thousand years earlier where Sarah, the wife of Abraham, she wanted children badly but couldn't conceive. But instead of pouring out her soul before the Lord, the Bible says she came up with a plan. You find that in Genesis 16. Sarah gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham in order to produce a child. And you know the rest of the story. The child born to Hagar was Ishmael, the father of the Arab nations. The natural inclination for the soul is not to wait. It doesn't want to rest. It doesn't want to trust in God only to supply our needs. I, I remember reading about a man who robbed a bank because he needed more money to fight for the custody of his young daughter. 
And his wife had died, and the mother's family wanted custody, and the father's source of income wasn't sufficient, and he thought he needed more money so that he can keep his daughter, so he robbed a bank. Another man robbed an electronics store, telling the clerk that he was sorry, but that he needed money so that his kids could eat. And he hands over a piece of paper with a demand for $3,000, and he escapes with the cash. Sometimes we're tempted like Sarah and these two men to hopelessly come up with our own solutions when it comes to the trials of life. We're, we're tempted to give in to despair and hopelessness rather than to trust in God. And David spoke to his own soul, telling it to wait in silence for God only to be his provision. He says, he only is my rock and my salvation. My hope is from him. Another directive we can give to our soul is to, this is number two, wait in silence for God only to be your protection. Your protection. In 2 Samuel 21, the Bible says that the Philistines were at war again with Israel. But this time, the war was different. David was older and not as quick and agile as as he was when he was a shepherd boy swinging his sling. And and guess who was at the front lying for the Philistines? The relatives of the giant Goliath, one named Ishbi Benab, one of Goliath's sons. Now, you know what was on his mind, right? Verse 15 tells us David was faint. And so Abishai, the son of Zeruiah came to David's aid and struck down the Philistine giant. And after King David was almost killed in battle, verse 17 tells us that David's men swore an oath saying, you'll never go into battle with us again. The lamp of Israel must never be extinguished. And then the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 22, David would reflect on this event. He would write the following words, which were also recorded in Psalm 18. Turn back to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, excuse me, 22. 2 Samuel 22. And verse 2 says, and he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. He said in verse 7, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and he cried out to God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. We see the response verse 8 through uh, 17, the earth shook, trembled. Smoke went up from his nostrils. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He sent arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, vanquished them. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. And so in his old age, the mighty warrior David, who once was sung about as he who has struck down his ten thousands, he was no longer in his prime. He was now an old, fragile man. Verse 18 in 2 Samuel 22, David writes, God delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. And it's said that in midlife crisis, that a midlife crisis is a time when adults recognize their own mortality. And it's oftentimes accompanied by clinical depression. And men and, and, and women oftentimes gauge their worth by their life accomplishments and by their slowly failing bodies. 
And we don't know if David was going through a midlife crisis, but we do know from 2 Samuel 22 that he had a talking to with his soul. And as he conversed with himself, he reminded himself of his Lord's sovereign protection. And in verse 19, he summarizes the entire chapter. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And so he, he, he closes this chapter. The Lord lives, verse 47. Blessed be my rock and, 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 and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me, who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise against me. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I'm going to give thanks to you, O Lord. Among the nations, I will sing praises to your name. Verse 51, he is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, if you peruse through this chapter, we see the words fortress and salvation and deliverer and support and refuge in, in 2 Samuel 22. We see these words being used, but don't make the mistake of thinking that evil won't ever approach you and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And promises like these in Scripture let us know that believers can be assured that no harm will ever come to the child of God unless the Lord permits it. And when he does, he permits it for our good. And what else? His glory. His good, our good, and his glory. And even if death comes, the child of God is delivered into the eternal presence of his or her Savior. That's how I've been able to get through this. And not only should we tell ourselves to trust only God, to be our provision and protection, we ought to tell our soul to wait in silence for God to be our portion. This is number three, our portion. Look back at Psalm 62, verse 1. David writes, from him is my salvation. In verse 5, he writes, my hope is from him. And in verse 6, David repeats verse 2, assuring himself even further that God was his only rock and his salvation, and he would not be moved. In 1834, a Baptist pastor living in London, England, named Edward Mote, he wrote the following words, and you're familiar with this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope. And stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, sinking sand. God only was David's refuge, rock, salvation. Is he yours? Acts 4.12 says there's salvation and no one else. No name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Christ, our rock. Look at verse 7. On God, my salvation, and my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. In verse 7, David writes, my glory rests on God. Glory is the word kabod. It's translated honor, splendor, wealth. It also means weight or significance. Any honor and wealth David had was because of God, but he, he's also communicating that his significance, and here's the word, his esteem all rested on God. 
And verse 3, uh, excuse me, Psalm 3, David writes, You, O Lord, are sealed for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. The lifting and the falling of our heads are indicators of the internal state of our being. Are we excited and joyful? The head will be held high. Are, are we experiencing despair or feelings of defeat? The head will what? Droop low. And David has been in enough situations to cause his head to hang low. But here in Psalm 62, he has come to the point in his life where he doesn't look to anyone or anything for validation or esteem or significance. But who? But God. But God. And don't miss how David frames his thoughts in verse 7. Psalm 62, verse 7. He, he says, on God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. And, and Spurgeon takes note of this. He, he writes, observe how the psalmist brands his own initials upon every name which he rejoicingly gives to his God. My rock, my salvation, my glory, my strength, my refuge. And Spurgeon says that David isn't content to know just academically that the Lord is all these things. He knows these truths personally. And like David, believers today can say, I know God as my rock, my salvation, my glory, my strength, my refuge. And so it's with this deep and passionate hope and trust in God expressed in verses 6 and 7, David calls the people in verse 8 to trust him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. The almighty God is your refuge. Think about it. You don't run to something smaller and less powerful than yourself for refuge, do you? It's like a single mom when swamped by bills and calls from bill collectors running to her five-year-old crying, what am I going to do? Please help me. No, you don't do that. At least you shouldn't. Psalm 61 verse 2 says, From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We run to the rock higher than ourselves. And don't make the mistake of ascribing power, majesty, and glory and might to people. Or even to your circumstances. Fearing them and granting them power over you. Look at verse 9, Psalm 62, verse 9. David does just the opposite as he evaluates those who threaten him in light of the omnipotence of God. In verse 8, he just encouraged the people to trust in God at all times. And in verses 9 and 10, he's warning them not to trust in people, not to trust in riches. Verse 9, men of low degree are only vanity, and men of, of rank are a lie. In the balance they go up, they're together lighter than breath. And so he writes that men of low degree, that is, the, the common folk, were meaningless. And one paraphrase says that they're only a whisper in the wind. And so David's point is that even if they're willing, common folk don't have the ability to give you the help that you really need. But he also writes in verse 9 that, that men of rank or men of importance are nothing but a lie. And one commentator says they promise much but perform nothing. They, they cause you to hope, but mock your expectation. So put these two categories of men together. When weighing them on the scale of importance, David writes that they're lighter than breath. And his point is that all of mankind, rich or poor, 
are insignificant compared to God, who was David's rock. And this was how he was able to say, I shall not be shaken. And I like how the KJV puts it, I shall not be moved. Look at verse 10. David continues to exhort his audience. He says, do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. The word oppression is, is riches gotten by extortion or unjust gain. Robbery is riches gotten by theft. And David says at the end of verse 10, if, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. He's telling people that even if your wealth comes lawfully, don't trust it. Don't trust it. First. Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, here's our last point. Here's our last point. If you're going to talk to yourself, <laughs> if you're going to speak to your own soul, tell your soul to be silent, to trust in God only, to be your provision, your protection, your portion, and your pilot. And someone coined the phrase, God is my pilot, I'm just a co-pilot. Sounds kind of religious. But isn't the co-pilot there to assist the pilot and to be his backup just in case he needs some rest or he blacks out or something? When when God is piloting the plane, there's no need for a co-pilot. And it's so easy for our souls to grab the driver's seat when it comes to directing our lives, isn't it? Turn to Psalm 77. Turn to Psalm 77. And in Psalm 77, it vividly depicts the struggle of the soul to be in charge and to pilot or to to be in control. And in Psalm 77, Asap begins sharing with the reader how in the midst of his trial, he sought the Lord. But as he was speaking As he was seeking the Lord, his soul refused to be comforted. Has this ever happened to you? Asap was in trouble, and he stretched out his hands in prayer to the Lord, and when the Lord answered with a blessing, his soul refused to receive it. In Psalm 77, Asap shares how he had to deal with his soul and put his soul in its place. Look at verse 2. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. And in verse 3, his soul seeks to dominate his life. It puts up a fight. It doesn't want to relinquish control of his thinking, his will, and his emotions. Verse 3 says, I remember God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Prayer kept Asap up all night, but his sorrow, his distress, and anguish were so deep that they were too much even for him to find the words in his prayer. And, and, and this is where many of us give up. We let our soul win the battle, take the lead. We let our mind think thoughts of defeat. We let our will determine a course of action, which is more often than not some kind of sinful activity. We give in to despair and depression. We let our emotions get the best of us. But Asap didn't give up. He didn't give in. He spoke to his soul. He put his soul in its place. Look at verse 5. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Asap 
he, he forces himself to think back to the days of old. Perhaps he was considering the record of Scripture that declared the power and the provision of God for his covenant people. Asaph could have also been calling to remembrance those times in his own life when he saw the Lord at work. And as he considers the days of old, he, he begins to ask his soul some questions. Look at verse 7 and 8. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? In other words, will, 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 I, will I continue to see difficulty? Will, will I ever see his grace again? Verse 8, has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forever, forevermore? In other words, will there be any more mercy? Can I still depend on his promises? He's asking himself these questions. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? In other words, is his wrath greater than his mercy and grace? And as Asap remembers the Lord's promises and character, we arrive at verse 10 where Asap scolds his soul for questioning God's love and disobeying his, disbelieving his promises. Verse 10 says, and I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High, and I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. 17th century Baptist pastor John Gill writes this concerning this passage. It is as if Asap, he, Asap, had said this. This is a sin against God. I am guilty of in, in, in questioning his love and disbelieving, disbelieving his promises. It is an iniquity I am prone unto, a sin that easily besets me. It flows from the corruption of my nature and the plague of my heart and shows a distempered mind. It is owing to the weakness of my faith and judgment. I have said this rashly and in haste without well weighing and considering things, and I am sorry for it. Look at verse 12. Psalm 77, verse 12, we find what happens when you start speaking to your soul and encouraging yourself with the word of truth. Asap said, he writes, I will meditate. That's an internal pondering. I will meditate on all your work and muse. That's a thinking that turns into external speech. I will muse on your deeds. Meditate means to murmur or ponder, to, to mull things over carefully. Muse seems to refer to a more preoccupation of the mind that spills over into speech. And so this is letting us know that when you're in, in the ga- engaged in the process of speaking to your soul, it will most surely overflow into your daily conversation. <laughs> when you're talking to someone at work or in the community, praise just leaks out. You could be walking down the hall at your job, and a song will come to your mind. Has this ever happened to you? I got peace like a river. I got peace. You're just walking down the hall, song, or you're in the restroom or something. A song just comes to your mind. And you, you know, praise just leaks out. You could be in the supermarket and come across a, 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 a good sale, and, and praise just blurts out of you. Thank you, Jesus, for those turkey wings. And as Asap meditates, his thoughts turn into speech. And so in verses 13 and 14, he writes, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. And so at the beginning of Psalm 77, the writer's soul was in charge. But by the completion of this psalm, he had relinquished control to God. 
And a hymn writer once penned these words, Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea, unknown waves before me roll, hiding rocks and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Let me close with another psalm. I'm going to go through this really fast. This is a psalm that I've been sharing with Sophia, my daughter, each time I visit her. Psalm 42. Pastor George gave it to me. And um, I think most of you know by now that Sophia was struck by a truck back in December, and she's been in a coma ever since. And uh, we're starting to see some response, and we're praising the Lord for that. And so when I see her, I read this psalm to her, Psalm 42. The sons of Korah may have set the psalm to music and sang it, but in all likelihood it was David that wrote it. Just want to share a few verses with you. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul, my inmost self, pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So David has this intense craving for fellowship with God. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? So as David was fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei, remember, he mocked him in this way. And so did the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders do so to Jesus in Matthew 27. Verse 4, these things I remember and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. That's what my daughter used to do. She was part of the praise team at her church. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, the multitude-keeping festival. And in verses 5 and 11, the psalmist speaks to his soul, his inmost being. He gives it a direction. Verse 5 says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Go back to Psalm 62. We're, We're just about finished. David wraps up the main truths of Psalm 62 with a bow. Verse 11 and 12, remember, he says, God is our rock, our salvation, our stronghold, our refuge. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to hope in him. I'm not going to be moved. And in verse 11, he says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. And in verse 11, David is using a Hebrew idiom that means, I have heard this repeatedly. And in the Hebrew language, when a thing is spoken twice, then assurance is made doubly sure. What did David hear? He heard that God has spoken. Power belongs to God. And David is communicating that force, ability, might, authority, capability, supremacy belongs to God. And there is no one who has more influence in every area, in all areas of activity than God. And David is declaring to the people that ability to defend and save him is to be found in God alone. And someone has tried to list the areas where God has overwhelming force, supremacy, and power. They listed love and intellect, wisdom, understanding, vision, logic, energy, eloquence, health, uh, wealth, uh, wealth, authority, privilege, prerogative, control, mastery, per- persuasion, and forgiveness. And here's an important question. Is there any need you might have in life? in which God is not superior to any other source you could ever seek out to provide help. Trust him at all times, the psalmist says. And David is telling us that when we need help in time of trouble, why not just go right to the top? 
And not only does power belong to God, Psalm 62 verse 12 tells us that so does loving kindness. And it's the word has said, and it's closely linked in Scripture with the covenant-keeping Yahweh, whose love to his people is steadfast. Loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. So David is assuring his people that while God is all-powerful, he is also abundant in loving kindness. And he will not forget those who have placed their trust and hope in him. He will reward each of these according to their righteous work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We are distracted with so many things in life, and we tend to put our trust and our hope in so many other things, people, material things. And then we we seek affirmation or esteem from from people and and things. But you have told us where to, or who to look to, in this psalm. And we pray, Lord, that um, you would help us, Lord, to take charge of our soul, our innermost person, when it tries to fret, lose faith or heart, anxious, temptation and all of that, Lord, that we would look to you. We would remind ourselves, Lord, of how you have promised to provide. You are our protection, Lord. We find our esteem in you. You will lead and guide us, Lord. Help us to look to you. Help us to resist, Lord, uh, just the fight that our flesh uh, battles against us, Lord, just to be in control. Help us, Lord, to submit our ways to you to trust you, to commit ourselves to you, and that you might be glorified in our lives as we acknowledge that you are king, you are mighty, the almighty God. There's none, no one like you. There's nothing too difficult for you. And there's no one that loves us more than you do. So we ask these things to your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.